0: Silence can be uncomfortable. <laughs> You're like he's he's having a panic attack or uh, or something. What's going on up there? Uh, silence can be uncomfortable, right? <laughs> here's why I put you through that minute, and I, I I I timed it. It was a minute of agony, right? Right. Um, here's why I put you through that minute of agony because I believe. That silence has the most potential capacity, ability to be one of the most influential practices in our lives. If I believe that in 2023, if we want to encounter the Lord's loving kindness and voice and the power of His word, I'm serious. I really, truly believe that there is no practice equal to silence to allow that to happen. (laughs) And yet, silence can make us uncomfortable, right? Silence can make us uncomfortable. And that's why we are a generation of noise. A generation of noise, Give me just a minute to unpack what I mean by a generation of noise. How how I really do believe that our current cultural moment here 2023, we live in the least silent, aka the noisiest era of all of human history. Think about that with me for just a minute. First of all, think about just the external world that we live in. It's loud. <laughs> We have a lot of technology today that we just didn't have, humanity didn't have for a lot of generations that has just made the world, like seriously, externally, physically loud. There's such a thing as construction now. I mean, construction has always existed, but construction is loud now. There are cars that have engines. Engines didn't exist for a lot of human history. People rode horses that were a lot more quiet than cars. So traffic exists. The world is loud. We have TV and speakers and trains and traffic, and all of these things lead to a world that when you step outside, you have to drive a large amount of minutes outside of town to just hear the sound of silence, right? The world is a loud world. And even more relevant, we actually live in what's known as the first ever digital age. Digital age. That word basically just means that we live in the first era that almost all of life is characterized by access to or the presence of some sort of digital device or a computer, right? I mean, think about it. Every single one of us carries around a supercomputer in our pockets, all the time, right? And then if you don't know where it is, you kind of have a little panic moment. Where's my supercomputer? Where'd I leave it? It's, is it charging? did I forget it somewhere? Oh no. You know, you know that moment you had that before? What if, what if something important is happening on my (laughs) supercomputer? We always carry it around with us. And some of us even carry them around on our, on our wrists in the form of Apple watches. We have computers in our cars. My car has a computer. I have to use the computer to change the temperature. It's really annoying. It's not a good feature. Cars have computers. I'm preaching right now with a computer, with an iPad, Think about it. People didn't do that for a lot of generations until the iPad came around. Computers live everywhere. Technology is everywhere. And for the first time ever, an entire generation, Generation Z, which is the generation after millennials, it's everyone born after 1997, every single person born in Generation Z is known as what's called a digital native. That basically just means that that generation will never know the world without the internet, and the smartphone. Isn't that crazy? That's a, that's a lot of you in this room. That's a lot of your kids. That's a lot of your grandkids. The first ever generation to not know that type of world. And the question sort of is, what's it doing to us, right? Like with the presence of technology and just a loud, noisy world all around us, what's it, what's it doing to us? What kind of people are we being formed into? What's it doing to our hearts, to our relationship with, with relationships with Jesus, right? And there's not a lot of research, right, because you, you just there's not enough time yet. You can't do a study on a generation that was born and raised all the way through to adulthood, the digital world. You can't study it yet. But there are a few statistics based on research that's been done so far. And they found out that, first of all, we are the most digitally addicted generation ever, which that's pretty obvious, the most digitally addicted generation ever. But specifically, here's, here's kind of what that means. The average American in 2022 spent four hours and 29 minutes using their smartphone every single day. That's nearly 1,636 hours a year, which is 18% of your day. of your year, that's 18% of your entire existence. (laughs) That's a lot of time on the smartphone. And then they also found that Americans spend about 3.1 hours a day consuming media, whether that's TV or YouTube or something else. That's a lot of time. And those two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Like some of them overlap, and there's time on both TV and smartphone. But regardless, the point is, that's a lot of time couple of other statistics that I found really, really interesting. A a study done by PR Daily found that 83% of people sleep with their phone within arm's reach. So even the time of day that we are most detached from our technology, it's still right there within arm's reach. (laughs) And then this one really convicted me. A study by Microsoft Research found that 77% of people responded yes, When asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Oh, man. And then this one probably hurt the most. The um, International Society for Neurofeedback and Research, how about that, did a study on high school students. And they found a direct correlation between time spent digitally and increased rates of loneliness, anxiety, and depression. That one's, that one's a little hard to, hard to swallow, <laughs> right? And before you just write me off as a grumpy guy that wants to uh, talk about how bad TV is or whatever, um, let me just confess that I'm, I'm totally, like, I, I, I'm not uh, up here on my pedestal high up here above you saying, so stop it. I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, I struggle with a lot of these things, too. I I fall into a lot of these statistics, the 77% that reaches for their phone when nothing's occupying their attention. I'm, I'm right there with you. But I think it's worth asking in our digital age, in the age that is noisier than ever, two questions. First, what's it doing to us, right? What kind of habits or even worse, addictions are being formed in us? What kind of addictions are being formed in our hearts? Like, can I give up the smartphone? I remember a while ago, somebody challenged me to go 24 hours with my phone just off, put somewhere else, and I was like, you can't. You can't do that. <laughs> they, they would find you or, or something. It's, you can't do it. <laughs> That's, you know what that says about my heart? I'm addicted to this device. And then second, with all of the noise and input... Are we still carving out space for the most important input of all? In the midst of all of the noise, where is God's voice? Where is God's voice in the midst of all of the noise? And I'm not just talking about like 15 minutes with him in the morning that you sit down and rush through and then get on to the rest of your day and then don't speak with him or hear from him throughout the entire day. I'm talking about A habit, a lifestyle of dwelling with the Lord, of walking with him throughout your day, praying at 3.45 p.m. and 5.45 p.m. and not just at 7 a.m., but inviting God's input into our heads all the time so that his voice shapes our souls Not the voice of technology and culture and the media and the news, which speak division and busyness and insecurity and false ideals and errant (laughs) dreams of sin, but the voice of God who speaks to the neediest crevices of our soul with truth and love and kindness and care and generosity. How do we open ourselves up to that voice of God and shove aside all of the noise and distraction here in 2023? Is there anything that we can do to open ourselves up to that with the Lord? The answer is yes. Good news. The church has practiced these ancient disciplines modeled after the lifestyle of Jesus known as silence and solitude. So today, what I want to do is just spend a little bit of time talking about these ancient disciplines, silence and solitude. Because seriously, I believe that these two disciplines have the most potential to impact your 2023 so that you can get to the end of this year and look back and say, I never heard from God like I did this year. This was a remarkable year in the quiet place, hearing God's voice. So what I wanna do is just look at the four reasons that Jesus practiced silence and solitude. Four of the things to which Jesus went to silence and solitude, four. And what I want to do is see how those things are amazing things for us too, how we should model our lives after Jesus and seek the same exact thing. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to move all over the place, and I'll have the scriptures on the screen, but Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And before you get there, I want to um, provide a little bit of context in the form of a couple of definitions definitions. I want to define, first, silence, and second, solitude. Now, these might seem a little straightforward, but I think it's worth doing for the sake of uh, argument and what we're going to talk about today. First, silence. Today, I'd like to define silence as simply the absence of noise. Seems pretty straightforward, right? But I think it's helpful to hear that silence is a discipline that's not, that's not practiced with the stereo or TV or the news or the radio on in the background, Silence is the discipline of the noise ceasing, right? Not nothing else. No, no quiet. No chitter chatter. Just quiet. And solitude is the absence of others. So we can practice silence here today, but we can't practice solitude here today because there are uh, lots of us present. So solitude is just getting alone, getting alone in a room in your house or on a walk at a park or on a rock by a river in Colorado I don't I don't know solitude is just the absence of others and we derive these practices from the life of Jesus and to help us find the times that Jesus practiced in silence and sol- practiced silence and solitude there's this really helpful Greek word that I'd like to introduce you to and that Greek word is the word eremos Can you say that with me? Eremos. One more time. Eremos. Very well. You guys are good. That's that's the word. You know a Greek word now. Eremos. And Eremos is translated as wilderness or desert, or others translate it as an uninhabited, lonely, solitary, secluded, or quiet place. And essentially, this is a place that Jesus goes off to from time to time. Well, not even from time to time. Really, really often with great regularity. And this is the place that he goes off to and practices silence and solitude, in the Eremos. So we're going to look through the scriptures and see a few of those times and see the four reasons that Jesus went to the Eremos, the first coming in Mark chapter 1. Now, a little bit of context of what we're about to read. Mark, unlike Matthew, chooses sort of a speed mode tactic to introducing the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All in chapter 1, the first 13 verses contain John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and the temptation account. Most of the rest of chapter one is just one day, Jesus' first day on the job as Messiah. So the picture we're meant to get is Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He walks out of the wilderness, spends one day in ministry, and then we're going to look at the next morning, the next morning, how that goes. So this is what happens the day before though, Jesus' first day in ministry. He calls his first disciples He onboards them with all of their tactics and strategies as disciple-makers. He goes to the synagogue to teach. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. He goes to Simon and Andrew's house. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. And then look in verse 32 and hear how the evening ends. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they were with him. See the picture? It's late at night. It's after sundown. And the entire city shows up at the door. Can you imagine? You're trying to like wind things down for the evening. You've had a pretty long day. You just spent 40 days in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, it's sundown. And the entire city, not big cities, but still hundreds of people. Imagine all of you showing up to your front doorstep. Pretty crazy. So Jesus stays up late into the night healing, casting out demons, healing the sick. What do you do after a after a big hard long day of work? You know those days that you just sun up to sundown, you're working, you're on your feet, you hit the pillow exhausted. What do you do the next morning? I like uh, I, I like to, you know, draw the curtains as tight as possible, turn off the alarm and sleep in as late as I can. This is what Jesus does. The day after that incredibly hard, long day of ministry, Mark 1.35, it says this, and rising very early in the morning, he chose the word very early there. Isn't that interesting? While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. After this day of sheer insanity... Jesus still went out into the Eremos to pray. And don't miss this, he was just in the Eremos for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights, right? And it's not like he didn't have anything better to do, right? Look at how these verses go on in 36 and 37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for Jesus. He's, he, uh, Jesus disappeared before the sun rose up, so they're like, what? where's Jesus? So they searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Remember last night how you started healing people and casting out demons? Well, there are a lot more sick people and demon-possessed people at the door, and they need healing. They They need your touch. They need demons cast out of them. And yet, Jesus is in the silence and solitude. Why? Because the first reason that Jesus practiced silence and solitude and that we should practice silence and solitude is for intimacy with the Father for intimacy with the Father, with God. Jesus looked at every single thing that he had on his plate, and he said, right now, more than I need ministry, I need intimacy. More than I need to do good things, I need to spend time with the ultimate good. I need to spend time in my Father's presence. And I feel the rub here personally. I I don't know about you, but I, I feel the rub because I can often get busy and feel like, when on earth will I find time for silence and solitude? And, and that's me. And I'm like a, a, a quarter of as busy as a lot of you. <laughs> I'm in ministry. And yet I can get to the point that I feel like ministry is more important than intimacy with the Father. And yet Jesus made time for intimacy with the Father. Think about this. No person in all of human history had more capability and capacity for a full schedule full of good, important, meaningful work than Jesus Christ, right? Couldn't Jesus have constantly taught, healed, cast out demons, done good, equipped people? He could have done that constantly. He had more capacity to do good than each and every one of us, ever. And yet Jesus Christ, God in flesh, decided though I've been God forever, though eventually I will go back to the throne of God and dwell right beside him as the second person of the Trinity, I still need to spend time with him while I'm here on earth. Isn't that remarkable? More than I need ministry, I need intimacy with the Father. And this wasn't just a one-time habit of Jesus either. I, I love how Luke 5, or in Luke 5, Luke describes this habit of Jesus. And all these moments are really interesting because they're the disciples looking on from the outside, right? You don't go to practice silence and solitude with Jesus. (laughs) Luke observes this, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But a contrasting conjunction, he would withdraw to desolate places, or Ramos, and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Um, I'm I'm currently in the third Greek, or fourth Greek now, at my seminary, and I, I just learned about participles, which is what the word would withdraw is, is basically. And this is actually a customary participle, meaning, yeah, I know, I Greek geek out for just one minute, thank you, which could basically be translated He would regularly withdraw to desolate places and pray. This was a habit of Jesus. And I love it. Luke's just like, yeah, there's a lot going on, a lot of ministry, and yet Jesus keeps like going off to the mountain and the hills to pray. It's wonderful. I love how it describes that Jesus so valued heading to the Eremos as a regular rhythm of his life. That's the first reason that we should practice silence and solitude for intimacy with the Father. The second reason comes from Matthew chapter 14, so flip just a couple of chapters back to Matthew chapter 14, I'll also have it on the screen, and this moment comes right after one of Jesus' best friends, his forerunner, John the Baptist, is horribly killed by Herod the Tetrarch. Herod has his head, kills John the Baptist, and in um, verse 12, we find out that Jesus heard about it, and his disciples, John's disciples, came and took the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus hears this news, this is what he does. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there on a boat to a desolate place, a Ramos, by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. The second reason that Jesus practiced silence and solitude was to process life. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is an incredibly, incredibly tragic moment in the story of Jesus' existence. He hears that one of his best friends has been killed, and we know that Jesus experienced real emotions, right? There are all kinds of examples of his anger and his sorrow and his joy. And we know that Jesus must have been filled to the brim with emotions in this moment. So filled with emotions, what does Jesus do? What's he need? He needs the Ramos. He gets on a boat by himself and rows to the other side to spend time on the mountain so he was able to pour out his heart to God to confess the hardships in front of him and i think this taps into to a deep truth right which is that silence and solitude are as good as nothing else at revealing what's deep inside of our hearts right have you experienced that phenomenon before like when all the noises cease and there's no distraction happening You start to like feel things, (laughs) and the things that you kind of like buried or shoved down start to come to the surface, and you're like, oh, what's this that I feel right now? I love how John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, put this. In silence and solitude, we face the good, the bad, and the ugly in our own hearts our worry, our depression, our hope, our desire for God, our lack of desire for God, our sense of God's presence, our sense of God's absence. Our fantasies, our realities, all the lies we believe, the truth we come home to. Our motivations, our addictions, the coping mechanisms we reach we reach for just to make it through the week. All this is exposed and painfully so. I like the way that Comer said it, but I think I like even better the way that um, modern poet and thought leader uh, 21 Pilots <laughs> described this experience by writing a song about, about driving a car without a car radio. I think this is one of the most fascinating songs. They say in it, sometimes quiet is violent. I find it hard to hide it. My pride is no longer inside. It's on my sleeve. My skin will scream. I hate this car that I'm driving. There's no hiding from me. I'm forced to deal with what I feel. There is no distraction to mask what is real. Anybody heard that song before? I love what it gets at that when the car radio is taken out and you're just driving for hours and hours of silence, I'm forced to deal with what I feel. There is no distraction to mask what is real. And in that way, silence and solitude are so frightening. They're so scary, right? It's terrifying when the feelings and thoughts that you've like folded up, shoved down, and put in a back closet are brought to light in in front of everyone, right? But in the same breath, silence and solitude are so safe because the place that those thoughts and feelings and emotions are revealed is in the love filled quiet company of your savior of god who can speak to those things the second reason that we should practice silence and solitude is simply just to process life to deal with that which exists within our hearts with what exists within our hearts That's the second reason. The third reason, oh my gosh, which I will fly through, I promise, (laughs) comes from Luke chapter six. I love this little story because Jesus does something that I would just never ever think to do. I love it, Luke chapter six. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. See what it says there? Jesus prayed all night, all night prayer vigil. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. How did Jesus decide who his 12 disciples would be? He went up onto a mountain, prayed all night for direction, and God gave it to him. When's the last time you had a a big decision to make? How'd you go about making that decision? decision uh, I, I remember last time I had a decision to make I just overthought it a lot <laughs> I asked a few people what they thought I did the you know the thing where you like flip a coin and supposedly like while well, the coin's in the air you you re- realize what your heart really wants and then it lands and you don't really even need to see it I probably did that thing I but what I didn't do was say i'm going to find the nearest the nearest mountain, (laughs) go up on it and pray all night until God gives me an answer. And yet this is what Jesus does. Why? Because the third reason that he practiced silence and solitude, that we should practice silence and solitude, is for direction. I love the image of Jesus up on a hill all night, knocking on heaven's door, asking, begging, saying, God, will you give me direction? And the example that it is for us who should do the exact same. And God, would you show me I'm not leaving until I hear what I should do about my job or this decision or this relationship or whatever is in front of me. God, I need to hear from you. And I love that sometimes in that quiet place, he does what he did for Jesus, which is say, here's the answer. Here's what I want you to do. But then often in that quiet place, he, he doesn't do that, right? Right? You realize it's not a right or wrong decision you're trying to make, it's a right or left decision you're trying to make, and sometimes God just wants us to pray and have that moment so he can instill in us his peace. No matter what decision that you make, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. The third reason that Jesus practiced silence and solitude was for direction, and the fourth comes from Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We already, we already looked at this very, very briefly, but we're going to go back and see the moment that Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. When he's tempted in the wilderness. This is actually the first mention of the word eremos in chapter 4 of Matthew. It says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Into the eremos To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights... He was hungry, right? Makes, makes sense. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to be hungry. So notice a few things in this passage. First, Jesus was led into the Aramos by the Spirit. It was an act of obedience to the Spirit's will. Second, Jesus is led into the, into the wilderness for a purpose, and that purpose is to be tempted. He's going to go in there and be tempted. He knows what's coming. And then third, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights fasting, and he became hungry. Makes a lot of sense, right? So let me offer you two interpretations of this story that have existed for a long period of time. The first is, this is Satan attacking Jesus at his weakest, right? He's been in the wilderness by himself for years. He's hungry. He's tired. He's at his wit's end. Of course Satan would kick him while he's down. That's the first interpretation. But the second interpretation that I think I actually lean toward is that this is actually Jesus at his strongest. What do we know about fasting? Does it make you spiritually weak? No. Fasting, when you fast, when you deny your physical needs to have a spiritual need met, you well up with spiritual strength. What do we know about silence and solitude? Does silence and solitude make you spiritually weak? No, silence and solitude are the place of great strength. What I think is actually happening here is that Jesus, for the fourth reason, went into the Eremos for strength. I think that the Eremos, the wilderness, silence and solitude are the greatest place that we derive strength, our strength in the Lord. And this would make complete sense of one of the last stories of Jesus' life before he was taken to the cross, right? In Luke chapter 22, right before Judas comes and gets him with his gang of people who have betrayed Jesus, what does Jesus do? Luke chapter 22, think about it. This is what it says. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Again, it's just mentioning, Jesus did this all the time. He went out to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. What's happening here? Jesus In his last moments, before he knows he's about to have to face the cross, he says, what do I need in this moment? I need alone time with my Father in the Eremos. So he goes and he prays saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And he, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And then what happened? He rose from prayer, and he came to the disciples. And do you know what happened next? Judas showed up and they nailed him to a cross. They took him before a council, wrongly accused him of things he didn't do, and then nailed him to a cross unjustly. And what did Jesus have? Strength, strength to persist even unto death. And he died there on the cross for our sins and then rose in victory three days later. Why? Because he had the very strength of God down deep within him. In his last moments, before Jesus had to face the cross, he went to the Eremos for strength to face what was ahead of him. The four ways that God uses silence and solitude in Jesus' life and in ours, too, were for intimacy with the Father, to process life, for direction, and for strength. So the question, as we close today out, is how do we practice these disciplines? This year, if we're really going to dedicate experiencing God's presence in the silence and solitude watching the noises the distractions sink behind us how do we practice silence and solitude I have three simple ideas for you um, as to how we should practice silence and solitude what other authors that have helped me a ton in this have have pointed out to me what I have found in my personal experience and I think the first is just this uh, ditch the phone I think the best advice that I can offer regarding your approach to the silence and solitude to the eremos is to absolutely not allow the phone into the eremos. You might say, but I read my Bible on my phone. I'd encourage you to get a physical Bible for that moment. You might say, but what if work calls? Well, you can tell work there are more important matters for the next 15 minutes. But how do I watch the time? Wear a watch. It means if you're, if you're on a walk praying, you leave your phone back at home or in the car. It means if you're, if you're praying on your couch in your living room, the phone is like in a drawer in the other room or charging. It can be charging, whatever. It's in the other room. Why, do I, why so kind of hardcore on that topic? Well, because I'm speaking, from my, um, I'm speaking from my own sin because I've had moments where I'm spending time with the Lord in the silence and solitude and I have my phone there And I get one text, and I'm done for. Now I'm thinking about that thing. I'm distracted. So seriously, I I think the best thing that you can do, one of the best things you can do in the Aramos is ditch the phone. Second suggestion is to pray. Pretty simple, huh? This is the answer to the question, what did Jesus do in silence and solitude? What should we do in silence and solitude? I love that the answer that the scriptures give us are, he went into the Eremos, And he prayed. (laughs) That's it. That's all we know. Uh, And I love that because it shows that the disciples didn't know what Jesus did in the Eremos, right? They weren't there with him. They didn't see what he prayed, how he prayed it, who he prayed it for, because that was Jesus' time alone with the Father. So I'd I'd encourage you, when you find these moments, to step away and enter into whatever your Eremos is, just take some time and pray, Spend time with the Lord. If you've done this 100,000 times throughout your life, allow this to be an encouragement to, to stay the course. Press on. Or if for you, this is, you're sort of new to this whole church thing, and you're like, I, I don't really even know what I would pray about, how I would do this, let me encourage you to try out this, this really simple model, the pray model. Basically, all, all you do is just come before God and spend time doing P-R-A-Y. First, praise. You praise God praise him for who he is, for the world he's made, for the ways that he's been kind to you. You repent. You say, God, I confess my sin and I accept your forgiveness. You ask God for things, both for yourself and for the people you love and the people around the world. And then finally, you yield. You yield, you surrender to God, your life, your decisions, everything that's in front of you. Start wherever you're at and just spend time in the Eremos praying. And then finally, I'd encourage you to establish a rhythm. A rhythm of practicing silence and solitude constantly, daily, and periodically. Constantly, daily, periodically. Let me explain what I mean by that. Constantly. What are some ways that, like, throughout your day, you can infuse your day with little moments of silence and solitude? What the writer Richard Foster, who wrote an amazing book on the spiritual disciplines called Little Solitudes, the Puritans used to ask the question, how can I, quote, improve a stray moment here and there? So, the question is, how can you improve a stray moment here and there by infusing it with silence and solitude? Maybe that means on your car ride to work when you're alone. You don't listen to the radio or the news or your favorite songs. You just sit in the silence and pray. I don't know what it means for you, but what are the little moments that you can capture to spend time in prayer with the Lord? That's constantly, next, daily. How can you establish a daily rhythm of going into the Eremos like Jesus did, making it your custom as well to dive deep into the Eremos, to have your own quiet, secluded, solitary place where you go and spend time with the Lord? How can you do that? Jesus, obviously, is an interesting case. He was a traveling preacher, right? So he moved all over the place, but he would always find the local mountain to go up on and spend time in prayer with the Lord. So where is that place for you? Where's that place for you? I realized last semester that um, I work at a church that's actually two minutes from Lick Creek Park, right? And one of the ways that I encounter the Lord the most is by praying to Him in nature. And I remember last semester, I had been having sort of the, the driest prayer life that I'd had in a while. And one day, I just, for a few minutes before work, went out to Lick Creek Park and spent, I, I walked like a half mile trail. And spend time in prayer. And I left and was like, why was that the best time in prayer that I've had in in weeks? And I realized it was because I took the simple step of going out into a physical or where I was all alone. So I want to encourage you and challenge all of you to find those places. They exist here in this town. Where can you get alone with the Lord, fall in love with a place outside or in your house spending time with him, and then finally how can you withdraw periodically for a longer period of time? How can you withdraw periodically for a longer period of time? Everyone on staff here at Grace is given a, a day with the Lord each fall and spring where we're supposed to just spend an entire workday, not checking email or phone or anything, but spending time alone with the Lord in the moss. How can you find that time for yourself? Where is it that you can find that specific time? Constantly daily and periodically. So what I want to do, just to close, is just ask, ask a couple of simple what-if questions. What if this year turned out to be the best year ever for you and the Lord? And what, it, what if it started with spending time alone with Him in the Ramos? What do you think could be waiting for you on the other side? What depth with God could be waiting for you what parts of life do you think he might help you process? What words of truth do you think he might speak to your heart? What lies that you're believing do you think he might dismantle? What direction for your life do you think he might give you? What strength might he infuse you with? What might God do as you meet him in silence and solitude? I think the possibilities are endless. So to close here today, right before we sing a couple or one more song, is I just want to give you a moment started with that uncomfortable, mo- uncomfortable moment of silence, right? I want to give you a purposeful moment right here, right now, to just sit in the silence and take a couple of minutes and just pray to the Lord. Process through with him whatever he's working in your heart right now and take a minute to just sit in the silence, push past that little uncomfortable amount and just spend time abiding in him right now. And then we'll finish off with song in just a minute.